Welcome back to episode 100 of Warrior's Den. In today's episode, I am going to go over a little bit about myself and how UTKM came to be and the journey uh, sort of to where it is today. This may be of more interest to some of my actual students, but uh, it's for all martial artists, of course, out there who might want to hear other people's journeys and how they got where they are and and uh, know that if you had a smooth or rough or up and down journey that there are many of you like you out there so you are not alone but first this podcast is brought to you by urban tactics kramaga turning lambs into lions since 2013 and i'll get into that more later of course and if you want to support this podcast or its content there are many ways to do it. The free and easy ways are to follow us on Instagram, Urban Tactics Kramaga, Facebook, Urban Tactics Kramaga, and Twitter, Urban Tactics KM. You can, of course, uh, go to our blog, utkmblog.com, and there you will see uh, posts made by me or others that I convinced to make various posts and ideologies or topics that they wish to. You can, of course, if you want to, send us your stories about martial arts training and how you used it in a self-defense scenario. If you want to, we can keep it anonymous, and you can send that to us at info at urbantacticscanada.com. And, of course, anything that we do choose to publish, we will give you three months free on utkmu.com. Now, before I get to that, you can, of course, support us directly by going to the Support Us tab on the utkmblog.com, and you can send us some money to support us, mainly me and my school so we can get have me focus on uh this content and other content so that i don't have to focus on other things which is always wonderful of course not if you don't care then that is understandable as well you can of course go to utkmu.com and you can sign up for our beginner or novice packages and check out the curriculum as i teach it at utkm it took many years to develop said curriculum and uh, again i can get into this in this podcast so there is that, and what else? If you need to get your firearms license in Canada, it's not specific to Canadian citizens, but if you want to get your Canadian firearms license, I offer the Canadian Firearms Safety Course and Canadian Restricted Firearms Safety Course, and if you want to sign up for those, you can go to our local website, urbantacticscam.com, and check out the tab that says CFSC and CRFSC. It's a mouthful, I know. And then the dates for the upcoming courses will be available there. So you can check that out. And of course, if you want to train with us locally, you can check us out at that website, urbantacticskm.com. And you can sign up for a free trial class or uh, put yourself on the email waiting list to be notified when we can take students at any given time. Sometimes too many people sign up in a week, so I had to put a waiting list. So there is that. So I think that's it for the basic intro advertisements so if you didn't know my name is jonathan fader and i will be discussing my journey on this podcast to where i am today enjoy krav maga is not just a self-defense system it is a way of life warriors den is a podcast for kravists fighters martial artists warriors politicians and general citizens Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Lucidity.
Your host, Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo, and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. Listening to the Warriors Day. Warriors Day, brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions. So I thought this was episode 100. I would do a special episode on the journey of not only myself, your host, and also you to Cam and how it came to be. Because if you'd asked me when I was younger, if this is what I would be doing for a living, I would have laughed at you. You see, my dream was to be a millionaire, no matter how many the ten, the, 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 the uh, direction I took by the age of 30. Well, that goal passed a long time ago, but that is okay because I am quite happy with how things have turned out. Now, it all started a long time, long time ago in a galaxy far away where an egg hatched, and a dinosaur was born. And that story has nothing to do with this. I thought I'd try to be humorous, whether they made you laugh. Good. If not, oh well. So, uh, I am actually from Metro Vancouver, Canada, originally. Uh, mostly spent times in certain suburbs of the area, and I am not. Contrary to some people's belief that I'm from Israel, I am not. I get in, that gets into the whole confusion about why I served in the IDF. Uh, if you are Jewish, uh, you can serve. You do have to prove you're Jewish, but you can go there and serve. So there is that. So I'm born Metro Vancouver, sort of to a you know lower middle class family. Uh, father's an engineer. Mother worked as an administrator for the local newspapers. Um, went to school like anyone else. Um, wasn't particularly popular, but wasn't not popular. I was one of those weird, could hang out with anyone. While some some people enjoyed my company, other people did not. That's still true to this day. If you haven't figured out, I am not like other people sometimes. It's easy to make that statement. Um, when you don't fit in with other people, it either because you're doing something wrong or you're just genuinely not like other people because there is a bell curve model. And if you're not in that sort of average sort of behavioral spectrum, other people will have uh, difficulty with it, whatever that means to you. Now, because of sort of that, I hung out with all sorts of different people. I um, found myself with sometimes hanging out with popular kids, sometimes with people that other people didn't find popular, but I hung out with them and I ended up with a wide variety of experiences. Sometimes I was hanging around not the best people. Sometimes I was hanging around totally normal people. Sometimes I did drugs. Some of them didn't do drugs. I personally didn't do any drugs in high school. I was pretty clean. I think I only even drank like a, a, a few times. Um, but nonetheless, I had a wide variety of experiences, some good, some not good. And uh, many of the stories that I acquired uh, in my youth, I still use to this day as teaching strategies to explain self-defense scenarios or decision-making processes. So my earlier youth is not 
not the most exciting in the world. Of course, if you were there, some of those moments would have been quite thrilling, though I'm not going to uh, disclose the details of some of those events as not such great decision-making as teenagers are. Now, as far as my martial arts journey, I didn't really do martial arts. When I was younger, uh, I mean younger, like elementary school, young young grades, my parents enrolled me into a variety of sports. I think they had me in the Jewish Soccer League at one point, uh, pre-hockey, as most Canadians did. I never actually played hockey, just sort of the pre-hockey. I don't know how old I was, six, seven. Uh, and um, back in the skill development period, and I was, I want to play hockey. This is not <coughs> hockey. I didn't understand the concept of developing skills from a fundamental level. And didn't until I started teaching. It's funny how that works. Um, said so did baseball, year of baseball or two, or, or uh, what else did I do? I don't even remember. I dabbled in a few things, but I never actually did martial arts. I remember very clearly telling my parents, hey, I really want to do martial arts, but I don't want to do something with katas. Because even when I was younger, I'm like, I don't want to do katas. I don't see the point. I want to learn how to fight. Uh, I do expand my stance on katas when I was doing episode 97 with Laszlo. So if you want to hear more about that, uh, why I'm not the biggest fan of them, even in my young age. And my parents would just say, well, we don't know. Uh, we only know karate. And this is pre-internet. So looking it up required extensive work. And uh, they didn't want to do it. So it is what it is. Uh, I believe in high school, I found a boxing club that some of my colleagues at the time wanted to train now i don't say friends because they really weren't my friends they're just people who knew me and i knew them and they really needed someone to drive them to the boxing place which happened to be my parents so they were much bigger and more one of them was very athletic naturally gifted athlete and both of them were bigger than me and the guy was an old school boxing coach just sort of show you a few little things hey get in the ring and punch the crap out of each other well i don't particularly like getting beat the crap out of by bigger stronger or faster people so i wasn't very much interested in sticking around i have to think real hard to remember that that sort of life event as far as something that i did and um, and then you know graduating high school like so many teens uh, and this is a uh, 2005 ish is sort of where facebook started becoming a thing so you still really didn't have very good social networking. You didn't really understand stuff. But at that time, like many people, it's also the time where um, sort of UFC, the ultimate fighter, you know, the Forrest Griffin, Stephen Bonner days. And I, as I discussed in my uh, last episode with Ryan of uh, Advantage Jiu-Jitsu, we were both sort of like, oh, I want to do MMA. And then, But at that time, I didn't have any friends who did it. I didn't know anyone who did it. I didn't even know what to look for. Because there was, you know, only certain schools very far away, not within a range that I was uh, able to get to or wanted to get to. I don't like commuting, surprise. And so I didn't really get too much into it. Now, at a high school, um, lots of people don't know what they want to do. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I still uh, wanted to go to university but I didn't want to be one of those person who just went for the sake of going because it's very expensive and I didn't want to waste time or money anybody's money for that matter and I was working at McDonald's like so many people I'd started that job I believe in grade 12 a funny life lesson we used to work graveyards Friday Saturday nights with a friend of mine and at that time 
there was no manager. It was just us. It's like, I cannot believe they would let two 17-year-olds run um, the McDonald's exclusively on their own with no supervision for like six, six hours at a time, Friday, Saturday nights. It's pretty hilarious. It shows you the extent that McDonald's, some of them people manage those stores so poorly. Um, but anyways, I won't be a podcast about trash-talking that company. Um, and if they do pay attention to me and try to sue me, wonderful, someone's paying attention. What interesting story I remember from that time, though, actually pretty hilariously, was there was a shooting right across the street. The location I was at, there was uh, sort of unofficial nightclubs in that area. They're not really nightclubs, but, you know, places people hung out, particularly for the Asian community, and there was a gang shooting across the street at the time and I remember it's like two in the morning I don't even think we heard it uh, please come hey can we get camera videos and we said well we'd love to help you but the cameras aren't actually plugged into anything there was a, a device but no one was recording anything again not to trash talk them but interesting if no one's watching did it even happen funny ex experience there so anyways I didn't know what I wanted to do and a family member of mine uh, had recently had a new partner that was into occupational health and safety. And they were talking about me periodically about, you know, hey, you should go get your first aid certificate. So you can be an on-call first aid agent. And they were paying considerably more than what minimum wage was at the time. Um, and I thought about it. And it's like, it, it's a better job anyway. And I couldn't even sit and play on my laptop or whatever in between shifts uh, during shifts if you're just a lot of the places I had to go you just had to sit there and be available and you'd go 8-12 hours with nothing happening occasionally someone would pop in I need a band-aid and you're like I need to write it down so I started in there and uh, still not sure what I wanted to do and then they convinced me because they offered hey we're going to start this apprenticeship program for occupational health and safety we're going to develop you and mentor you into this field uh, start this at there at that time there wasn't really any degree programs for occupational health and safety it was very much the early days of like officializing it as an industry or a specific field before that it was very much hey you're the safety guy you run it so the local uh, technical school BCIT offered a, a program meant for people working so I signed up on that and started that. And it was uh, sort of, again, hey, we're going to mentor you. Hey, we're going to develop you. Hey, we're going we're gonna to help you be an expert in this field. So I said, okay. So I, st of course, started the program. It's uh, mostly online learning. And eventually I got my construction safety coordinator, which allowed me to be a safety site supervisor on construction sites, which that's a disaster because in this where I am, nobody gives a shit about the safety guy. Often the companies begrudgingly have you there because they're required to. Now, this was many years ago. So it was just, and you be imagine being the 20 year old guy telling other people what to do. And, you know, I was being told, you lack experience, you, you blah, 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 you don't know what you're doing. It's like, yeah, that's wonderful um, because no one let me do anything or nobody is doing that thing that I was told I would get mentorship so I, I think I believe I paused my learning for a little bit and I decided to go to Israel for a bit and get some experience now there's a program in Israel that allows Jews who've never been to Israel or don't 
necessarily have family in Israel, just really never been to go for free. So I said, hey, uh, let's do that. Let's let's go to Israel and see it's all uh, what this is all about. I just wanted to get away and do something different. On top of that, there was a second program that allowed volunteers with some experience to help out with Meken Divina Dom, which is the Israeli ambulance service. So I thought, hey, I'm in the first day in the safety industry. Maybe if I go get some experience, uh, they will let me do stuff more when I get back. Or they'll trust me more instead of just telling me I'm young and don't know anything. So I went and I did this program. I believe it's called uh, Taglit. And, uh, you know, thought being around more Jews, they'd be like, oh, I can connect with people. Nah, not really. There was a particular group of people uh, seemed to be upper middle class to wealthier individual kids who come from pretty good families, most of whom were from Winnipeg, I believe. And all I wanted to do was party. They weren't interested in the museums. They had no interest in doing anything significant other than screwing around and whatever. So needless to say, I didn't really get along with them, though looking back, I probably could have relaxed a little bit and partied a little more. But still, at that time, I was very, still didn't drink too much, didn't mess around, you know, a little bit here and there. And um, yeah, I was like, okay, well, whatever. Went to do the ambulance thing, and it turns out if you don't have very good Hebrew, it wasn't the best experience to be. Uh, so I got stationed after training in uh, Ashdod. I did another two weeks training, got uh, Red uh, or a week, week, I can't remember, but like Red Cross level uh, international first aid certificate. Don't know where I put it, but still, it's out of date anyway. And then I was stationed in uh, Ashdod. It's, I don't know half hour, an hour south of Tel Aviv, some southernmost borders. I'm probably screwing up drive time. And uh, there was a few of us stationed there, and we were stationed sort of, uh, we were sleeping in uh, sort of these refugee places. <laughs> they gave us a room with a roommate in these places where uh, it's basically, you share a room, I don't know, 10 or 15 foot by 10 or 15 foot, and it happened to be in like the new immigrant place. So new immigrants who don't have very money are often housed in these places. So there's people from all over the world who moved to Israel with very little money would be housed in these places. So we were also housed there. It was an interesting experience. Though living in a, per a small room like that with another person you barely even know is always fun. Sarcasm. So the, the program didn't end up working the way it thought because basically any of us that didn't speak fluent Hebrew when we were waiting on our shifts in the uh, ambulance stations would basically be ignored. The drivers would come and... Uh, hey, you, come with me. And they would almost always take the people who spoke fluent Hebrew. They didn't want to deal with the rest of us. Now, some of them spoke Hebrew, some of them didn't, the ambulance drivers. There was, I remember even one ambulance driver who would rather go on calls by himself than bring any of us, which I always thought insane, and he was allowed to. Uh, the paramedics there are extremely good, by the way. And it was just like, this is ridiculous. And I was supposed to be there for about uh, three months, um, but that didn't last. Now, the only interesting call I believe I had was I was brought to a call of an attempted suicide attempt. Uh, I think he just wanted an extra pair of hands. I forget, don't remember the driver, but still. And we went there, and a guy had tried to hang himself with a cord off of the shower curtain rod thing, which you can imagine how that went. It didn't go well, uh, and he did not succeed. So when we got there, the frantic family, uh, 
screaming and shouting and I just said I don't speak Hebrew very well why are you yelling at me and I remember distinctly seeing someone who had a ring around his neck it had done some damage and I the driver looked at him checked his pulse he's like okay he's alive and I'm like you know I remember asking him this one spoke English it's like aren't we gonna take him to go get checked out he's like nah he he tried to commit suicide this is the police's problem and we left as the police were showing up. So at that time, whether it's still true or not, I'm not sure. Israel being a religious state, uh, suicide was still technically illegal. So now it's a police matter. It's a little messed up as a Canadian. I, I just think that was the most fucked up thing. This person was also a drug addict, which they looked at that time very down on. They probably still do from a legal perspective. Uh, whether that changed or not, I can, I don't know. I haven't been there in a long time. So, you know... That's the most memorable moment. And I remember talking to people who were stationed in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem or in the big cities. And they're like, oh, yeah, we went on all these interesting, interesting places, these calls, like these crazy calls. I remember someone telling me one where someone's face was smashed into a window, which I can imagine was not very pleasant. But, you know, my initial uh, point I'm getting, my initial experience with Israel actually was kind of boring and not very interesting. And me being the not the most social person, I, you know, knew people, but. I didn't explore and I wasn't as adventurous as I should have been, you know, also not having all the great deal of financial money finances means I can't really do that much because you have to travel and you have to do all sorts of stuff. But also when you're by yourself, uh, it's not very fun. So I ended up uh, leaving that and going back and being like, hey, let's let's get back to this health health and safety stuff. I guess I got some experience. It helped a little bit. I seemed to get a little bit more respect. But, you know, you're still young. And I worked my way through the program at BCIT, and I finished, uh, you know, in about two years with honors. Now, near the tail end of that, the last sort of four, uh, six months, I was getting a little annoyed uh, that I was essentially being treated like the company bitch. And near the tail end, when I was being allowed to do certain things, it was it was kind of annoying. Anyways, I finished my certification, and... Uh, this was begin, be, being allowed to do basic sort of consulting work, just uh, not with the clients directly, but sort of preparing documents and doing all that sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I worked pretty quick. It was going pretty well in my perspective, except anytime I didn't get something right and I'm like submitting it for, for to my supervisors, like, hey, check this out. They're like, you can't submit this. And it's like, I understand that. This is exactly why I'm here to learn. And so you can show me how to do it properly. And, and I was not getting mentorship properly. Now, that aside, there was also, in my personal life, I believe, as it always is with me, something to do with a, a, a girl and things were going sideways with that and things were going sideways with other things. And I just remember when they put this other younger guy in his like 27 as my new supervisor because there were some personnel issues at that and I just thought to myself you know what uh, fuck this like obviously they're not interested in mentoring me like they they thought they would or they think they are now there was more to that story is that the individual's partner turned out to be a real piece of shit so no shocker there um, why things weren't going the way they were supposed to go as far as hey I understand my personality aside, where I do things aside, but where's my mentorship? <laughs> Non-existent. So uh, I basically said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to do what I thought I should do 
in uh, when I went to do Magen David Adam, which I almost did, which was stay in Israel and do the army. So I remember um, talking to a high school friend of mine who uh, was working as a at a local car dealership, just the one of the lower level jobs. Hey, if I quit this job I'm working, which was paying really well, by the way, um, I could you get me a job? He said, sure, we can get you a job. Now, I went from making a lot of money for someone at that age back then at the very tail end. You know, it was a fair amount of money. Um, the kind of money that m most people would be even happy to be getting in today's dollar. Um, in retrospect, sometimes I'm like, oh, I should have sucked it up and stayed because I would have probably owned like multiple houses. But I was just not happy. Uh, even back then, I realized that there's more to life than that to a degree. And anyways, I, from the time I quit that job and then I started uh, working at this uh, car dealership, another shittily run company, but hey, if you're making millions and millions of dollars, uh, nothing can be possibly wrong ever in the internal workings of a company, right? Uh, that shall be rem remain nameless. Now, uh, working there, I was also doing this other thing. I joined a program that every like three to four months or every few months you go meet with a group of people who also wanted to move to Israel as what's called a lone soldier. And the lone soldiers were people who went to Israel without any immediate family there to support them. Chayal Boded or Chayalim Bodedim. My Hebrew is crap, by the way, at this point. And I started sort of learning Hebrew. And at certain point, earlier on in that process, there was one of these guys who worked at uh, the dealership who said, hey, you're planning on going to Israel. Do you know what Krav Maga is? And I said vaguely, you know, a little bit. I know a little bit. I saw a documentary, you know, about it, and it's very interesting. Um, and uh, he's like, I know a guy who's teaching it and uh, wants to, is looking for students. And I said, he gave me the contact information. Now, that individual turned out to be my original uh, business partner. I won't get into that. Uh, if you want to know who it is, you can look at the old, old, old episodes or posts on the uh, the blog. You can check it out. And there was him and another individual uh, named Tony, who is a Bulgarian ex-Air Force pilot. And the two of them uh, taught uh, Kramaga. It was then under IKMF, the Israeli uh, International Kramaga Federation. And uh, I started learning, and I learned for about seven or eight, eight months and developed my skills to a degree. And then off to Israel I went again. And uh, that was, I went to Israel, I believe, in 2009 this time. Uh, and I said, you know, my mother always thought, oh, shit, he's not going to come back. Um, he won't, He's going to stay, and he's I'm never going to see him again. Well, that didn't happen. I came back. But anyways... So I went with another program, this time again with that, uh, with uh, helping s people who wanted to be lone soldiers and join the military. And I do have some family in Israel, but they're just on another world. So my ability to get along with them, they're wonderful people, but just not develop a significant relationship. Part of it is me, of course. And uh, I went through the process. Learned some here before. Before I actually ended up going early, several months earlier into Israel, prior to my program actually starting, and I started. I went to an ulpan, which is the school to teach Hebrew. They offer it free for all new immigrants, and I started learning Hebrew more significantly. And I was getting pretty decent actually. 
Uh, and then when I was assessed, I did not have a high level of Hebrew. So they wanted me to go to uh, the army ulpan, which turned out to be more about the most disciplined place I was in the entire army. Now, I should remember, when you do your initial intake, they do physical and mental assessments, psychological evaluations. I scored really high on the mental and psychological evaluations. However, uh, they gave me a low physical profile due to something I'm born with that in no way, shape, or form affects your ability to do anything. <laughs> it was a silly little rule. I'm not going to get into details about if you, this thing happens, you can't be a combat soldier. And I remember being like, I flew all the way into this country. I want to be a combat soldier. And I actually had to fight to be able to become a combat soldier or infantry, uh, as normally it would be called. Um, but on paper, it always gave me that low physical profile. I forgot what the number is, and uh, which caused a lot of problems. It basically prevented me from trying out for special forces uh, tryouts because by the time anyone could sort it out, it was too late and the trials had passed. Now, with that being said, physically speaking, I would not have met the minimum requirements at that time. I'm probably in better shape now than I was back then. Um, peak male physical performance in your 30s. So I couldn't get into special forces, which was my dream, though some would say not dream enough. But I'd read lots of books uh, from people who'd done it, and I wanted to get into special forces, but my, my time passed, and I was una unable to get in. So I said, after fighting, I st still can go into combat. And this, you know, they said, where do you want to go? I said, I want to go into the paratroopers. Well, paratroopers, at least I was able to go do the trials. But they, for some reason, so there's a, well now five major infantry brigades in Israel. And a long time ago, the paratroopers, or Tsanfanim, I butchered that one, used to be sort of a more elite unit. Now they're just a regular infantry unit, but they still have the air of elitism. So you have to do a trial to get into the paratroopers. Uh, they didn't take me. So I ended up in... Uh, they said, where do you want to go next? I said, okay, I want to go to Golani. It's another famous infantry unit. So paratroopers has the red berets. Uh, uh, Golani has the brown berets. And they said, ah, no, we don't want to. We're not going to put you there. And it's like, okay. And then I, they said, you should go in uh, Nachal, which is one of the brigades. They, all, they usually put like the Westerner, white foreigners there, the English speakers. They all shove them there. And I said, I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to go to Givati which is the other one. I just decided to be contrarian. I'm not going to go to Nahal. I'm going to go to Givati. Though I may have had a better time in Nahal, for all I know, because I would have been around a lot more uh, similar-minded people, which is possibly why they wanted me there. So I got, got into Givati, uh, which is purple. So if you're wondering, I purple is the um, beret color that they have. So if you're in Israel and you're walking around and you see people with different colored berets, it basically means kind of what unit they're attached to. It doesn't necessarily mean they're in a unit because, uh, you know, you, uh, w uh, people could have a purple beret, but they're actually not a combat soldier. They're just attached to that unit and involved heavily in that unit. And know those different colors indicating sort of where you are. Now, I, so I got into Givati, um, and uh, basic training is four months. And advanced training is three months, and depending on when you cycle in or out, you do either you go do guard duty for three to six months somewhere, or you do more training with the entire regiment. Uh, so Givati would be a regiment. So I remember 
going from uh, the army Wupon to basic training for combat. I remember being shocked by the complete lack of discipline as compared to the discipline that was expected of you in the army Wupon, which I always thought was hilarious. And one of the reasons it was explained to me why the infantry, at least, is not the most disciplined is because if they're too disciplined, uh, so uh, combat is optional. Sometimes they kind of course people be like, yeah, you're in good shape, blah, 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 you should go there, and they just kind of stay. But it's optional. You don't have to do combat. So there's, someone explained to me, if we're too strict and too hard and too disciplined, then a lot of these people will find reasons to get out of combat duty. And in order to keep the numbers, they kind of treated it as a game. It's like I was just shocked. I even remember hearing about someone who served in the American Marines and then went into basic advanced training and had a mental breakdown with the complete lack of discipline and the way people were behaving. It was just, it's not what you expect. This idea that all militaries are the same and operate as the way you see them in the Marines is nonsense. It's every military is different. Some are really strict. Some are not so strict. I remember later we met a guy who served, actually served in the Ukrainian military prior to coming to Israel. He didn't actually have to serve in the Israeli military. Uh, I believe it's an international rule. If you serve in one military, you don't need to serve in another military. But he did anyway. And we asked him what was the difference between the two. He's like, you get fed here, although the food is uh, questionable. <laughs> but there's just interesting, interesting perspective. So, you know, I went through basic training and... Uh, it was tough for me. So for in that every unit is a little bit different on how the training operates. Uh, they have a beret march uh, where you do a long march, force march. Uh, they do like six kilometers an hour with a crap load of gear. And uh, Givati's beret march was at the end of basic training. And uh, the um, other units, it's at the end of, ad end of advanced training. And they sort of... You know, what you learn in basic training is how to shoot your gun, basic field maneuvers, how the army kind of works, structure, etc. And also building you up to these field marches. You know, they'll start a little bit of gear on and, two, two, you know, two kilometers. And then they do a little bit more gear and then five kilometers. And then, you know, by the end, uh, end of it, ours was a 40 or 50 kilometer, 40 kilometer march, I believe. And they run you at a pace that it takes you all night to do. And then, uh, you know, we did that about four months in and which is you know these long some of these long marches are very hard and, and i tell you know i have to I'm no shame about this my it's very difficult for me i have these short little legs i'm not a natural athlete you're putting on way more weight than my body can handle and they were i was always at the back struggling uh and i remember even there was one time where we had to share you know take the burden you shared certain things and i said okay i'll carry the water jug forgot one of the later marches and there was like 10 or 15 kilometers left and like i all of a sudden had the worst stomach pains and had to go to the washroom so bad and i said i gotta stop i gotta go i cannot hold it and i had to go well i had switched my regular bag with somebody else to take the heavier load of the water tank and i did not have any toilet paper on me which i normally keep in the bag and there I was just looking around. It was like sand everywhere. It's like, I have nothing to wipe with. Well, pull up your pants and you go keep going anyway. <laughs> that was fun. Go another, uh, you know, whatever long it was like that. So some of these can be difficult. And there's no music allowed 
it's very difficult mentally. Um, you have to be one with your thoughts while being quiet and going at a pace that for me at least was way, way too fast. And uh, I can't remember whether it was near the end of basic training or near the advance. I think it was just sort of in between transitioning. Um, but we went on this exercise. It was We were just sort of a support troop. And uh, it was a big exercise involving multiple units in a, in a place. We were simulating sort of a Lebanon environment in case we have to go into Lebanon. And uh, it was a big exercise, such a big exercise that the general, head general at, of the entire military, at that time it was uh, Gabi, Gabi Ashkenazi uh, and then Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Whether you like him or hate him, they were there. And for whatever weird reason, I, me and my commander, my sergeant, who happened to be close, um, were invited up to go talk to them as the soldiers. It's like, okay, well then, that's interesting. I don't recall exactly how the conversation went, but uh, long story short, I mentioned I'm from Canada. And they said, oh, you're from Canada. Oh, the prime minister is going to Canada in a few, in a few weeks. Then, um, okay. And I think one of his PR guys whispered into his ear or they decided, hey, you should bring this kid along with you because it'll be great PR because we're going to Toronto and talking in front of all these Israelis and all that stuff. And uh, here I am being uh, me as I, they, I believe they wanted to fly my parents from, from Vancouver to Toronto and me there. And I was like, no, my parents can't fly. They're sick, which they, my parents have some health issues. I was like, mainly I just wanted to go back to Vancouver and visit people. I didn't want to just go be used as a tool. But anyways, uh, we were, I went with them and I remember I met, you know, Netanyahu's wife and his entourage. And, you know, my, I said to someone, oh, that'd be so cool if I could meet uh, then Prime Minister Harper as well. But uh, they're like, yeah, that's not going to happen because that's not going to look good for him. So why would you be seeing him? We're not going to bring you for that. And I was like, oh, well then, disappointing. But I remember they had me, uh, They, I believe their plan was to bring me up on stage with my parents and make a big hoo-ha of it. But I ended because my parents didn't come and I was just me. They just had me stand up and wave. It was a weird, weird experience. Uh, I remember having dinner being brought along to some dinner you know, friends of the idf wealthy people in toronto it was interesting anyways i went back to vancouver uh, i do still have signed photos from from that day uh and later uh i found out from a friend of mine who grew up with netanyahu's son they actually were not happy with me because i would not play that role and i remember a lot of surprise i'm being stubborn with international politics shocker which should tell you a little bit about something uh about me is that i don't really give a crap who you are i'm not your pawn so there's that story but i found out from my friend they were not happy they found out because he was friends with Nenyo's son and i remember a lot of people when i came back got very angry that th it wasn't them and I remember people asking, they wanted me to tell a story over and over again. I got very cranky about it. It's like, just leave me alone. I remember one of my commanders saying there was John before he went on that trip and John after that trip. I'll tell you why I think that changed, because I was quite content embracing the suck.
then to be flown by the way we stopped in paris because there was a uh, international summit and they put me up in one of the nicest hotels in paris for a day and then i was flown to toronto and being treated first class the only time i've flown first class and then to vancouver first class although when i flew with the prime minister it was obviously their version of air force one just a nothing fancy plane just like a <laughs> private plane big plane for them and their entourage and security and uh i came back and it's just obviously they noticed an attitude shift and uh just because it's like you go from embracing the suck to not embracing the suck to the fanciest stuff world-class treatment to back to embracing the suck uh and then i believe we changed commanders i forgot uh, we changed bases and we were uh, in a place called uh, nebi musa which is in the jordanian valley it's quite shitty and we were doing all our advanced trainer there is hot by that i mean just nothing but desert camels and hot um, and we were there f doing our advanced training, go do all sorts of stuff, go through our advanced training. And uh, then after seven months, you go do, we were uh, cycling into going on the line. The line being um, uh, guard duty. We were stationed uh, in uh, just west of Nabulus or Shem in, in Hebrew, which is one of the three major Palestinian cities protecting a Jewish settlement and uh, my experience there was an interesting one is that that's where you really get to see the dichotomy between the Israelis and and the Palestinians now I can say as someone who was there a lot of the claims against Israel are complete bullshit um, however some of the way that Israel handles stuff not great and it's often it's just an individual soldier or individual group of soldiers acting like a bunch of dickheads one thing I can say though is that by law, the IDF, the Israeli military, can arrest Jews in the West Bank, settlers or not, but politically they will not. It's just a disaster politically because the religious people in Israel have a strong political power, as in there's never been a coalition government in the entirety of the country without appeasing the political right religious people. So even if the, some of the settlers are acting like lunatics, which they do, because I remember there was one time they slashed my lieutenant's Hummer's uh, tires, and nothing happens to them. Of course, as you know, if, if Palestinians go after Jews and they don't stop, they'll probably get arrested. So that's one thing I can say. I did not agree with the double standard. It's like, hey, you're being a dick. You're going to get arrested either way. And the claim that we were not allowed to arrest them is false because we had authority there to do so. So there's that. But I remember this time being mostly about a game of cat and mouse, as in every week you'd have Palestinian kids come out start screaming near the settlement, you know, 100 meters, 200 meters away. This is a lot of rolling hillsides, by the way. And uh, sometimes it would just stop there. Sometimes you'd get, you know, hundreds of them gathering just to scream and shout, and we would stand there and just wait. It's usually when they started throwing rocks or started progressing, uh, we'd throw tear gas. Now, actually, at first, we didn't even have tear gas. Throw, whatever, shoot. Um, but there was one incident in between that where there is about every there's these certain days every year where they particularly want to protest and be aggressive by they i mean the palestinians uh and there was about 100 200 palestinians trying to charge our encampment now we had or this uh, the settlement at the time uh we was about six or seven of us on the fast like alert squads there's always at any given time a group of people who's ready to go like a whole squad of people if it's just to be ready you're not allowed to take your boots off you have to be ready, call, boom, you gather and go. 
it was a lieutenant, my sergeant, and like, I don't know, four or five of us. We didn't have any riot control gear, none. And uh, they had slings. Now, you say, oh, they have rocks, you have guns. Like, okay, we're, we did not want to shoot anyone. And they had slings, and we see rocks flying past our heads at like very fast speed. If you get hit, you're going to go to the hospital. And we didn't know what to do, and we said, uh, I think the lieutenant said, okay, uh, follow procedure, fire in the air first. And then he told my sergeant to do it instead of doing it himself. Like, what a jerk. And then they were still advancing, and I said, as my sergeant's like, okay, uh, I'm going to fire in the air. And he's like, what, just you, not all of us? And he's like, no, the lieutenant said me. It's like, this is ridiculous. So I said, said, okay, we should all do it. He's like, okay, fine. So we all shot in the air. You know, bang, 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 bang. And then you hear the lieutenant on the radio like, ceasefire, what are you doing? I just said one of you. And uh, I think it was the right thing to do because it showed that we are not, we ha- we will stand our ground. And they backed off. I remember after that saying, they m- I went to my captain who was then a former, he was former Duvdevan, his big Russian guy. Duvdevan's an undercover uh, unit in Israel who was our captain at the time. Because you switch captains and you switch uh, lieutenants periodically depending when you switch bases or who's doing what. And I remember being very angry that uh, there was no riot control. I'm like, do you intentionally want to create an international incident? Uh, Whether it was because of my complaint or other people's complaints, uh, we ended up getting tear gas and rubber bullets for the remainder of our our time there. Now, I also had a very good friend, during this time, because I ended up going to sniper school at uh, Mitkanadam, the counterterrorism base, we were, became designated smart, uh, snipers. Oh, I forgot to mention, earlier on, I was a light machine gunner, and I hated, hated it. They often always give it to the foreigners because we're bigger. This other, I jokingly said, oh, I'll take the machine gun, knowing that this other guy in my squad was going to be it, but he blew out his knee a week before the selection. And I wanted to be a marksman, and they gave me the damn machine gun. So I had to argue to go be a sniper. And thank God, because uh, this was before we went on the line, I believe. See, I'm going from memory, so I can't remember exactly everything. And uh, uh, I ended up making really good friends with my spotter, which is obvious you should be. He was a, a guy who spoke fluent English, and though he grew up in Israel, was originally from America. And... Uh, Thank God that I ended up in that sniper squad because I think they they picked the, some of the smartest guys, most of whom spoke or understood English, except for the two guys we hated who did not speak English. Not we didn't like them, not because they didn't speak English. Because um, I had like Russian friends who spoke English, who were from Russia, Ukrainian friends who spoke English, and even the ones who didn't. There was actually there was one guy from Russia who didn't speak English, but he's a super nice guy. It was these two guys that we just didn't like. It was about ten of us. And uh, our, our sergeant. And uh, this is before that sort of incident I was talking about. And we went to sniper school six weeks and we became very close. And I'm happy that happened because I that probably kept me a little sane because this is the part that my mental health was declining. Uh, my mental health started declining heavily uh, after my spotter went on to go to sergeant school or commander school to take over a squad. And that left me like all my friends are slowly going away. And I basically didn't relate to anyone in the squad. And uh, uh, I remember my mental health was in not a great place near the end of that. It was probably a year and a half in. It was very much in decline. You know, I remember even trying to get out of the military. Now, here's what happened. I originally, how long you have to serve is based on age. 
So uh, if I had actually moved to Israel three days earlier, my minimum requiring serve time was six months. Because I moved when I was like 21, something like that. I landed when I was 22. So if I moved when I was 21, uh, it was uh, a year and a half. And then if it was 22, it would have been six months. So one of the things I had to sort of agree to loosely was uh, uh, if I... Uh, what was it called? If I wanted to be a sniper, I had to sign an additional uh, six months or so. And I, t- if finally, st- you know, they're like, "This is the condition. This is how it normally is." Turns out that was a lie. They had me sign under false pretense because I met a whole bunch of people at sniper school who didn't actually need to sign additional time, and in fact, were serving less collective time than I did in the military. Mil- gotta love military bureaucracies. It's the same bullshit in every country. So near the end. Uh, after that time, we were done in Shkam. We went to cycle a three-month uh, training field exercise with the regiment in uh, Golan Heights, I believe. And near the end, it was al- almost about two years. And then um, at that time, when I was back uh, home, which was a kibbutz, and I should have mentioned that earlier, I lived on a kibbutz because that was part of the program I was in. But I think I would have been much happier if I'd sucked up the financial loss and moved somewhere else is like Tel Aviv it would have been much more uh, fun because oftentimes when I come home every week or so I should clarify take a step back uh, in the IDF you go home every week two weeks three weeks depending on what unit you're in what's going on I had friends who'd come home every 28 days uh, for two three days uh, that was the minimum minimum they were in special force units and stuff but uh, many of my friends in the reg forces, other uh, other regiments, they uh, would go home every two weeks or every three weeks. Now, our regiment, Givati commander, has decided, no, my soldiers are going home every week, which uh, probably affected my mental health negatively because if you embrace the suck and you're like, I'm on base, I'm going to be here, you're a much, you sort of get in a state of this is what it is. But when you go home and then don't go back, go back, it's like uh, freedom, not freedom, freedom, not freedom freedom and it, it really screws up things up so one of the times near the end of my service uh, I broke my foot I believe I was drunk and I was dancing fun way to break my foot whatever which basically pulled me out of service ultimately um, and I was going back and forth I remember like fighting with people to get out and I remember um, at that time I was trying to also get out in time so that I could go to my friend's wedding the same friend who gave me that job um, and it was a long, complicated process. Eventually, I ended up home. And, and that was it for me there. Now, a few things. I was in uh, not the great mental health place. I had just been away from everyone for two years. I'd come back once or twice, I believe. I came back twice during the time I was in military for a week or two. And uh, But after my service... Um, I came back in Canada and I think I literally did nothing for like four months. I just sat there, watched cooking shows of all things for the most part, because that's all that was on during daytime te- television. This is pre-Netflix, I think. And I just sat there. The, it's probably a good thing I did that. Now, what I started to realize, I was having a, a little bit of a hard time adjusting and trying to make friends with people who'd basically continued on with their lives that didn't really... I'm not even sure a lot of them liked me in the first place. So that's always fun. But then when you start to see they'd moved on and they'd gotten used to you not being in, in their lives and when you try to integrate back in, it didn't didn't go so well. You know, some people accuse me of having PTSD. 
turns out it was depression because uh, I had met this girl uh, that caused me to have a manic depressive episode. And that was a fun time. Um, but let's step back. When I came back, it turned out that my original training instructor had started teaching again. And I started uh, to uh, learn. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's a gap in my memory. See, our memories are fading. I can't remember if I started training with IKMF Marcus Torgerson before they started up again. I believe, yeah, I think before that sort of situation happened, I was training with Marcus Torgerson, who's now, I believe, a G3 IKMF uh, under the IKMF brand. And then at some point, because when I came back, I believe my original uh, training instructor was gone in Taiwan. So at some point, I started connecting with them again. And... Uh, Marcus eventually stopped teaching and we started teaching again and I met a girl and then all this sort of stuff and things went sideways. I had a manic depressive episode and that was a realization that, oh, I have serious mental health problems. Um, serious mental health problems. As in, I lost like 30, 40 pounds in a two-week period or something like that and was just going to work and coming back. I was working at the same place I worked before I left dealership and uh, visibly shaking and I sort of dragged myself out of it nobody helped me because uh, it turned out nobody gave a shit um, so I just sort of figured out went to the doctor sorted that out but in this throughout this whole process started teaching uh, Krav Maga as an assistant sort of I was asked by my former uh partner and original instructor to start to teach um, because they had attempted multiple times to start Krav Maga schools and was having trouble so they brought me on to help them teach and I'd been asked actually by Marcus to do the IKMF uh, instructor program which at the time I didn't think I was ready for but um, you know it is what it is um, and uh, sort of UTKM kind of became a thing I remember we had a hard conversation saying listen if you want me to actually come on and help you really develop this thing, then I uh, I want to come in as a partner. I'm not just going to put resources in to this. And so we actually started it in 2012, but then when I came in as a full-on partner, uh, it was 2013 we founded the company originally, Urban Tactics Krav Maga, um, through just circumstances. And at that time, I was still working that other job, and uh, for reasons I won't get into, I did not continue with that job. And I was sort of forced to decide to go 100% into the company. Now, full disclosure, I probably didn't do as much work as I could have done to develop it. Uh, I wish I'd known what I knew then or what I know now then. But, it, you know, it is what it is. And... Uh, at the time, I also started going to school uh, for psychology because it's something I'd always wanted to go to school for. Now, we originally started, when we started teaching, we started in other renting out of some uh, other places, their former MMA gym, and it, this fuse didn't work. And then my former partner found where I now teach out of now, Budo Mixed Martial Arts, uh, with its original owner is Scott and Mike. Mike now is the owner of Boot or Mixed Martial Arts Burnaby, where I still teach to this day uh, out of that space. 
and um, we developed and it's like oh there's you know actually something to this you know we had like 40 students 50 students and like I built a website I started building the social media at the time uh, and uh, building the programs and uh, we also then at some point about seven or eight months in that we uh, the former business partner introduced me to these other individuals had you know quite a bit of money they were interested in having us come in as a training division and said, hey, you can rent space from us in another another place, our office. We have some space downstairs. You can rent to start a school. And we've partnered with these new business partners. And uh, that gave us a school in another suburb. And it went from there. Now, again, I wish I knew all the stuff I know now about running a business. Because, boy, did I and them make tons and tons of mistakes uh, financially some of which I'm still to this stage was trying to deal with. Um, and it sort of comes back to that initial thing. In the absence of mentorship, you are going to be bumping and figuring things out as you go. And this idea that everyone can do that and become successful on their own is not true. Some people need a lot more failure than others before they'll figure it out. And some people can jump right into it, figure stuff out and grow. And there's a lot of problems along that way. Often when people are like, why don't you do this? I'm like, I got to explain to you all these other problems before well, I got to fix before I can do what you want. So anyways, we started building and we were like, oh, let's teach people. We'll just build other instructors because the model in Krav Maga up and then was literally run a three to four day instructor course and you can certify people. So under us, I was like, I don't want to do that. I want to develop a proper instructor program, something significant and serious. And so that's when the sort of instructor program started out. It usually took people a few months to do it. And I've since expanded it. It takes a little longer now. And if you remember the episode I did with my student uh, a few few episodes back ago, uh, I did uh, with Nate and I talked about what I want out of the instructor program. So we certified a few people and crash course. And it was sort of the early iterations of that i would never do that anymore it's just you do not produce good quality instructors in that short time luckily the individuals at that time uh, had some experience so that helped out a lot um and then things kind of went really sideways with those secondary business partners and to the point where we wanted to distance ourselves as fast as we possibly could um we had these other individuals that were renting a space next to us a uh, powerlifting gym and they wanted to get a bigger space so we in the minimum needed to get out of that space because it was causing too many problems and we looked around and found a space in a in what we thought was a great location in an older building it was kind of like a warehouse old older warehouse the uh, property wasn't the nicest uh, and I thought, you know, this is a lot of potential. It's huge space we can develop into. I wanted to build this huge sort of thing. And uh, we moved there. And uh, so sort of a thing happened with that powerlifting there. It ended up being horrible tenants. We had the head lease and they were subleasing from us. It turned out that and I had to evict them. And it turned into a they uh, almost lawsuit that got dropped sort of in the end. But I ended up using that lawsuit to sort of leverage and get rid of the other partners who we didn't know how to buy out because they were like we're you need to buy us out for x amount of dollars and we're like are you insane like this that's not justifiable it was like a lot of money we're like you guys are on crack (laughs) 
So we're just like, you know what? Between me and them, we had majority, so we just hold on. Me and my original partner, we just hold on. Eventually, someone came along and decided to buy from them. Don't know why. Why people buy into companies that aren't making exorbitant amount of monies and and are doing okay but not great it's it's is what it is but it was very helpful use the lawsuit to leverage got them to sell for a reasonable price got a new partner um great and here's where things start going sideways so as i mentioned i have a lot of mental health issues which i've been working on over the years and i can say and this is not an excuse, this is just reality. When people have mental health issues and they're having problems and nobody wants to help them grow and be better and it's totally on them, it's going to be a long, long journey. Uh, and it actually wasn't until I, and I've always been working on it, you know, therapy or other stuff here and there. It wasn't until I found my current, well, my wife, not current, my wife, um, and then through our own personal issues, we've developed to be much, much better people hence the reason we're married despite you know always typical marital disputes um but uh that location basically was too big and had too many problems and we weren't generating the student base that we wanted to on top of that uh there were serious problems on a personal level between me and my original business partner they have mental health problems too which were not being resolved and there was a lot of personality conflicts yes i want certain things out of this company as in i want to build something more than just a typical Maga school which caused a lot of conflict um sometimes people don't get along sometimes you know i'm not the nicest person sometimes other people need to admit fault too and this just did not work and eventually uh, came to head there was an incident and then we had to part ways with that original business partner and my original instructor that that kind of happened um and another person came along and said hey i'll help you and i'll he bought them out and then ended up buying out that first business partner the the uh, second business partner because they um wanted to help the school okay it's great now it's just me running the show essentially and now years of it's actually a few years of conflict between all the instructors and us and it definitely caused hindrance and growth because the environment of the school was not cohesive um there was conflicting messages to students and instructors between the two heads and things just didn't work out so we parted our ways and the iteration of sort of utcam that you're seeing now is is what i've always sort of wanted it to be in that I'm developing more than just the physical self-defense. It is far more than that. Um, so that's sort of a summation of my journey to here and a little bit about that. Obviously, I'm not going to get into the details beyond what I said. It's We just don't need the conflict. If you know who the parties are involved are, then so be it. But... Um, if you want to build something, everyone needs to be on the same page. And if you look at any company, often the founding members, they, they, they break apart. Uh, and, you know, obviously the journey where we are now getting out of COVID has been very difficult. And uh, I've put more online. But the goal still stands of turning lambs into lions. Um, 
we want to build this, or I want to build this into a place. As I was explaining in the previous episode with Nate, that I want urban tactics. One of the reasons they settled on the name urban tactics is because as the urban population is increasingly, or uh, the human population is increasingly becoming urban, um, we need new tools to learn to better defend ourselves. And I wanted to take a more holistic approach, give you the skills you need to personally defend yourself physically, give you the mental health skills to defend yourself mentally, the, uh, and also have spiritual and other skills to do. I wanted a holistic approach because the world is changing and we need, you can't just punch people in the face. And that was one of the reasons that we settled on the urban tactics. Um, as well as I should get into the logo, the logo is a combination of my army insignia, which was a fox, and their uh, army insignia, uh, the original business partner, was a flaming grenade. And also there's a famous biblical story of Samson's uh, firefox. So we came up, I believe uh, the former business partner had a graphic designer friend at the time who came up with the logo for us, uh, which was the UTKM shield. And to represent a whole bunch of things. That's a cool logo either way, obviously. And so that's where UTKM is kind of at now. You know, it's just me running the show. And I've spent a lot of time and energy putting more than just that. Obviously developing the curriculum. The curriculum was predominantly ours, or mine, sorry. But I should add into that sort of timeline. During that time, see again, I'm doing this from memory, so it's a little all over the place, but during that time, uh, we branched out from IKMF. I went and I personally went and did uh, from 2000, uh, sort of 14, 15, I did uh, instructor courses with Nir Maman uh, of CT707. I did instructor courses with Leo Rofenbach uh, of CKMI. I did instructor, uh, well, not an instructor course, but I was given an uh, instructor. Uh, basic assistant or whatever of the baseline instructor certification from Moshe Cass after being introduced to him. Uh, later on, I, of course, went and trained with IKF, uh, Amit Hemmelstein. I continue to train with when I'm able to them because I like the organization. I'm not really actively involved with the other ones. Oh, I'm still in contact with Nir. Obviously, I had Nir on. Uh, Nir lives in Toronto and... Uh, uh, just doesn't run that many courses right now. So otherwise, I'd gladly train with Nir. Um, and that's sort of through my training with my original partners and through IKMF and Marcus and all that developed, looking at all the curriculum, and I wanted to follow the principles of Kramlinga, which is simplify your curriculum, keep it simple. And eventually, realizing training with other non-traditional organizations, I realized, oh, I don't like this overbloated curriculum. These are not connected techniques, and started refining what we're teaching at UTKM, which did cause some conflict as to what we should teach. And I had some in former instructors, you know, get pissed because they're like, I don't, I just learned this stuff. I don't want to have to relearn it, which is like, that's the wrong attitude, man. Sorry, because Kramaga is supposed to evolve and you're supposed to change. And so the curriculum is a mix of all the things that I've learned, uh, not just from that, but also the other martial arts. For example, I started jujitsu in 2012. Um, to go a step back again in 2012 when I came back from the army and I was sitting around back to that sort of story about the um, wanting to be the UFC fighter I was watching UFC at a bar and there was a, a, a sort of a jiu-jitsu school that was there presenting and I was like oh cool 
and signed up, started my jujitsu journey there. Um, again, started the same place where I, uh, where Ryan on my last podcast guest, uh, Ryan Kitchen started at and met him there originally. And, uh, it's sort of been uh, that journey. I'm now, now trained under, of course, Budo Mike Hansen, Budo Burnaby Mike Hansen. Um, so I draw from all of my experiences and, and start looking what techniques work. And often, sometimes techniques and curriculum uh, do this because it works or do this because I teach it. And I started noticing some of my students uh, had trouble with stuff, particularly the smaller students. So I would try to find the techniques that work for as many people as possible. Obviously, not everyone. Some people can just power through stuff. Some people cannot. And through the experiences and training with all these different organizations, as well as my dabbling in other styles, you know, not that I'm an expert, I've done seminars here and there, you know, in other styles, as I said, it's a little bit of boxing, kickboxing, all that sort of stuff. And you try and say, okay, how do we adapt the curriculum to cover the most possible situations while maintaining the minimal possible techniques and connecting them all in a way that's built on top of each other, not just a mishmash of random techniques that don't connect together. So that's sort of the philosophy of, of the curricular development and how it's been an ongoing, evolving process of how I want to teach the curriculum. I think I'm in a fairly good place on, on how I've developed the curriculum that I'm teaching. Um, in case so, if you're wondering where the curriculum comes from, it's a mix of multiple chronic organizations. I took what I liked, got rid of what I didn't, and I literally teach as minimal as I possibly can to get maximum results. You know, I expect my students to be able to fill the blanks on their own. The classic, what if this? What if that? What if this? Well, if you've been doing Krav Maga 10 years and you're still asking that what if question, you're either being a jackass, just trying to trap the instructor you're learning from, or you genuinely don't understand, in which case maybe go train somewhere else. So I want to minimal teach minimal things while focusing on principles, technically minimal things so that you can fight your way out with minimum knowledge and capabilities for maximum effectiveness so that's sort of the story of where we are today and obviously covid threw out a massive curveball uh it finally solved all the drama and all the chaos that was before and then covid19 came along but i'm quite happy now at, at the way things are and and, and Getting back to that mental health thing, uh, you know, often people, and this is going to sound cliche. So here's the thing about cliches. They're cliche because they're so common and nobody wants to hear them. They're not original. But if they keep popping up as narratives, there's some truth to them. So the cliche is, let's say I'm wildly successful eventually. I'll be like, oh, it's because I kept doing it and I stuck through it and I didn't quit, Right. First of all, if you don't put the effort and you don't keep doing it, then you're missing out on all potential opportunities that might have made you successful. Now, well, the other aspect of that is not everyone's going to be successful. Not everyone's going to work out. So here's the thing. Uh, for me, with all my mental health problems and as well as my social problems, you know, I've talked about my uh, social anxiety and my issues socially before on the podcast. I have no shame in discussing this, nor should you acknowledge the issues and work on them people don't like me then too i don't give a shit you don't like me don't like me you want to be around me great if you find benefit in me being in your life awesome so for me one of the reasons i kept going despite all the obvious problems is my mental health because for me it was my rock 
And I've said before, if I didn't have this, I don't know what I would have and who knows what I might have done. But I kept doing it because for me in my world, as obviously I'm continuing with Karma Ga, that it's what kept me going. Because whenever I would sit and say, I don't have anything worth living for, if I ever had that issue, then I would look at my students and how the ones that are choosing to learn from me have greatly benefited from it. And I said, okay, my students are what are going to keep me going. So obviously the theme of mental health is something I discuss all the time, but in a less woo-woo bullshit fruity loops kind of way that a lot of people like to discuss it because I think people are full of shit. I mean, how can we operationalize this to make it functional for self-defense? And yes, for those guys who don't want to talk about it, you need to talk about this shit. But for those of you, it's like, how do you feel? It's like you have to have a balance between the practical reality of the world we live in and also that, yes, mental health factors into a lot of things. So for me, UTKM wasn't just the school. It was my identity and what kept me going as a means to, I am actually good at something. I am useful in this world, even if I'm just helping a handful of people. And for me, you know, I had a student the other day that I was discussing with and I was teaching them uh, knife self-defense, basic knife self-defense, not knife fighting. Knife self-defense and knife fighting are two different things, guys. And they said to me, you know, John, you're really good at this. Um, you understand this. You taught it in a way that uh, makes sense to me. And that why they kind of had the premise that learning knife stuff is not practical self-defense. And they're like, you actually made me understand why this is super important to learn the way you're teaching it. And they said, you know, John, I think you found your calling. And I said, I know. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. Funny story. I remember in high school, uh, biology, there was a teacher. I I feel bad for it now. I used to talk through the whole class because it was boring for me. The, the, just the way the information was being presented, not the biology itself. And I remember one day she said, you know, John, I, you're not going to make anything of your life. And I said, you know what? <laughs> me being the smartest. It doesn't really matter what I end up doing. I'm going to be making more than you. Which actually turned out to be true, right? Because of the occupation, the health and safety stuff, I did end up making more than a teacher. Um, and she was very upset by that. And the hilarious, hilarious part, the irony, is that I found my calling in teaching. It turns out I'm really good at teaching. At least the subject matter that I teach regular on. Obviously, if you teach new subject matter, you're going to be struggling until you do enough iteration. So when my friend said, you know, I think you find your calling, it's like, oh, I'm, yeah, I know. Even if I do other stuff, I don't mind doing other stuff. But with all the issues, you know, going on, the reality is when you don't fit in, even if it's just because mental health or you have trouble working for other people because of mental health, you got to make your own path. And for me, it is this teaching and developing a school that helps as many people who want to come learn if, if self-defense. Right, nothing wrong with other martial arts, but if they're teaching it and there's too much sports application or too much other stuff, it's not really self-defense. So always useful to have some, the more you're able to use your body, no matter the style, the better you will be able to be in any self-defense situation. But UTKM is not just uh, a place where people learn self-defense. It's the thing that's kept me going over the years, despite all my struggles. 
and uh, thankfully through exploration and tough discussions with my wife and other things we've explored that I've talked about I can say that I don't really have depression anymore it's not really a thing uh, now that I can manage that I'm able to grow as a person now that when you fix that underlying problem you can then start the growth if you can't fix those underlying problems it's going to be very difficult to grow so you know as I said this this podcast probably of more interest this episode is probably of more interest to my students um but for those who are interested in this i hope it's been helpful just so you kind of understand how utcam has come to be and where it's at and maybe every you know a hundred episodes i'll do another check-in to see where we're at um i could have certainly been a lot more detailed in the the aspects of my life however for the sake of not uh saying things i shouldn't publicly on record uh and i don't have notes to write but i'll I'll probably do that next time um but you know for those who know me i'm very free free flowing and i this podcast by the way i should talk about this podcast so i actually started this podcast in like 2015 when i realized that podcasts were a very viable and the reason why I stopped for about two years was mental health. Just too much chaos in my life. I started this podcast again during COVID because I was I thought oh, people need to have these conversations. Also, I have more free time and I need to have conversations with people. Because one of the things about myself is I talk out loud. I, I work through my thoughts through verbal communication often. Sometimes I'll say things that are not, it's not very clear to people, but I'm actually working out my thoughts. And for me, podcasts have been very helpful. I discovered podcasts in 2011 when I broke my foot, Joe Rogan podcast. I was bored on the internet, on iTunes, searching stuff. And I found, oh, what's a podcast? And I just explored and free time found it. And for me, you know, I've mentioned podcasts for me, didn't make the finding podcasts made it so that i don't feel so alone in the world because now i can find voices of people who think like me or ideas that i'd never thought of or heard of so that's one of the reasons i started this podcast so other i can be that for other people as well for those who want to listen and i didn't really know the identity of what i wanted the podcast to be I, I like to talk about politics if you know i like to talk about what's going on in the world i like to talk about martial arts i like to talk about anything um so, you know, in the early days of the podcast, there was no real um, direction per se, but it sort of followed this, but I didn't know what to do with it. And if you want to listen to the older episodes, they are there on the on the um, uh, podcast, uh, on the blog, utcamblog.com. They are there. So if you want to go hear some of the people who were involved in the creation of UTCAM, you can. And you can piece together some puzzles if you want to. Uh, I'm just giving a perspective and you can do the work to fill that in. Um, as far as the details, again, of my life story so far, I left it very loose. I'm sure if I sat down and wrote, I could do, like anybody's life, a considerably interesting story. Uh, this story wasn't that interesting, I think, but it's more of just, hey, this is a check-in. Publicly, I'm giving you a check-in. This is where it is. This is how we got to be. Uh with that being said, uh, when I was younger, one of the decisions I made about how do I want to live my life, and I said, I just want an interesting life so that if I died, uh, someone could write, have enough to write an interesting biography. 
I'm pretty sure that if we delved into the at various little details of my life, we could have a fairly interesting biography at this point. Maybe one day we'll sort that out where I'll actually go through and try to remember the details. It's a real shame. I actually had, I kept a journal. The only time I journaled was when I was in the military. Uh, I lost that, unfortunately. I think I left it at my now. What Everyone has a crazy ex. Uh, and I know it. She was bipolar, allegedly. So everyone has one of those, and I believe I left it at their place when we broke up. The second time didn't work out the first time. Uh, it might not work out the second time, although I say that I dated my wife, and then we broke up and then got back together when we realized life is much easier with the other person in your life for a variety of reasons. Um, so I unfortunately, I lost that journal. I wish I c was able to find it, but no, I lost the journal of, of my Army experience. That would have been... Very helpful uh, looking at how I was feeling and how the details of the experience. Because as I said, this one is very much from memory. And as we all know, eyewitness accounts, well, as you may know or do not know, because as we all know, it's a too much generalization, um, eyewitness accounts in the human memory is faulty. Some of us are better at the other. As I get older, I'm not doing as well. I used to be able to remember conversations I had with people quite well. And that did well socially when they can't remember what they did yesterday. And now I'm at the point where I can't remember what I did yesterday. So it is certainly interesting. So, I mean, I guess that's a good point to stop. I had no idea how long this was going to take. Just going through sort of a general run through of my life. Uh, general storyline of uh, where... UTKM, how it got to where it is, for those interested. Again, let's call it a check-in episode uh, with the school and what's going on, and I'll probably do it every, you know, maybe let's say 100 episodes if I remember that, um, just so you can have an idea. And again, part of the reason is I am one of these people that has no problem putting it all out there, and a lot of people really struggle with that, and I think humanity will be so much better if you stop being stoic, you stop pretending. We just say what we're feeling. And if you hurt someone's feelings, then too bad. Then you don't need to be in each other's lives or you can work through it. Both are viable options. But the resentment and the not being honest and the pretending things to look better in the eyes of others and all this stuff and going with group things just because and all that is going to be a disaster. So I hope that me putting myself out there continuously helps you to do the same because doing so will help you work through your, you don't have to put it on record like this but you can putting yourself out there stop holding it back grow and develop and be a better human being so i hope this check-in and sort of uh, loose history of my life in itkm has been useful for you and uh for those who have listened to me from the start, thank you. And for those students who have stuck by me, thank you. You don't know what it means to me. Uh, for those who have chosen to stick by despite all the drama and, and chaos, uh, such is my life. So thanks for listening. And for those who have continued to support. You're listening to... The Warriors Day. Warriors Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga.
turning lambs into lions.